Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I just have a few short messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow and help me get on bigger and better guests. Also, don't forget you can pre-order my book, To the Moon, The GameStop Saga, right now by following the links in the description below. We've also got a few quick sponsors for the show today. One of the most overlooked aspects of running a podcast is who you host with. You might think it doesn't matter, as I did for quite a while, but it's really crucial to pick a host that is not only going to be reliable, but one that is going to help your show grow and evolve. That's why today's sponsor is Disctopia, what they call Podcaster's Paradise. Whether you're starting a new podcast or need to migrate one over from another host, you have found the best podcast hosting solution, period. With more features and flexibility than any other platform, from unlimited storage and uploads to multiple networks, Disctopia has it all. With Disctopia, you'll get a podcast profile page, the ability to manage multiple episodes, and an embeddable episode web player, all on a secure site. You can even have private or exclusive episodes, which you'll get paid for, and your podcast will be distributed everywhere via RSS feeds. Your listeners will get unlimited downloads, you'll get access to unique listener reports, and their analytics are second to none. And on top of all of that, you get 24-7 world-class customer support. Dystopia will give you creative freedom for all your podcasts with integrated merch as well. That's right, just upload it all in one place and you can set your content to be downloadable or even stream only. Dystopia gives podcasters more power. So what are you waiting for? Start today by using our code CHATTER, that's C-H-A-T-T-E-R, to get your first three months free on us. That's a special code for listeners of this podcast. Three months of free hosting by using the code CHATTER. Check out Dystopia today. Links for everything will be in the description below. So check them out and then please enjoy the podcast. So I believe we are live. How exciting. Uh, people, pe- people can, uh, can let me know if the, everything is working all right. So, right. well, I mean, I believe it is. It says it is. So, uh, yeah, if people are tuning in, they can't hear me. Let me know, but I think you can. <laughs> so hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of chatter today. I have the absolute pleasure of being here with, uh, Mike Yardley. Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, Josh. Pleasure to be here. Not a problem. It's uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to chat. I mean, I think we're going to get into uh, a lot of things. Uh, it's the world is just bonkers at the minute. So, I, I think these sort of conversations between people who are confused, who are wondering what's happening, who are concerned about issues like liberty and our dwindling democracies, um, I think is really important stuff that we do connect like this. We do discuss the issues. We do encourage other people to think about it and talk about it. So with that, over to you. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the one of the things that I have become stunned at over the last year or so, and this is the, I think, where we'll probably kick off, is that there is, we've had for, what, since, well, since the end of the Second World War, at least, uh, we've had a pretty robust system where we have um, like a, capitalist economic system with um, a reasonably solid welfare state 
and and that has done us an amazing amount of good um and and over the over the past few years um well i mean it depends when you when you want to start your your uh when we did well when you want to say we started our descent into what we're at now but it's sort of slowly become corrupted and in my mind it's a lot of the institutions have have kind of lost their purpose but that doesn't mean that the system itself is a problem it means that we haven't put enough safeguards in to prevent it degrading where do you think this this started this sort of crumbling of of institutions and and norms and and i don't know liberty democracy like it seems like we were were is this something that always happens are we always destined to be descending and we have to sort of fight to get it back every time or yeah where do you think this all began i think a lot of people are losing faith with institutions you know, a friend wrote to me yesterday, you know, I don't know who the goodies and the baddies are anymore. People are, they don't have much faith in the establishment. They feel the establishment has let them down. They don't think so much that actually it might be partly their fault hmm. that it's happening on our watch. And we do have an individual responsibility to preserve our historic liberties. I mean, you think of the people that went to war in the Second World War. I mean, in my own family, um, my uncle Keith, funnily enough, he led the Irish guards over a bridge at Nijmegen. It's in a bridge too far. He's the poor sod who said driver advance. And in a few minutes, a lot of the people he knew were killed after that. They got ambushed. My grandfather spent a year in Gestapo captivity. He, he was a Danish surgeon and he smuggled Jews out of Denmark to Sweden. Wow. And those guys really did their bit for the liberties that we enjoy today. And I think, in a way, we, we've forgotten all that stuff because we live in such a materialistic world. And this isn't all accidental either. Sometime in the 1960s in particular, there was a sort of philosophical movement developed in Oxford um, particularly, where as people were losing faith in, in the old authority, the old class system, the old hierarchies, um, there was a science developed of pushing their buttons by manipulating selfishness and greed, which commercial entities took advantage of, politicians took advantage of, and you had a whole new sort of breed of politician, be it Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, later Tony Blair. Um, and meantime, you have all these big corporations operating in the background and getting increasingly expert at pushing our buttons. I mean, if you've ever seen um, those Adam Curtis films, you know, Century of the Self, mm. and seen the way that the science of manipulation was developed really with the First World War um, for military and national propaganda purposes. And then after the First World War for commercial purposes, getting people smoking and buying cars and that sort of stuff. And, and then after the Second World War, in a colossal way, and manipulating things like Freudian depth psychology to press people's buttons to get them to go out and buy, buy, buy. And that took over from the old hierarchies in a way. You know, people, if you look at the 1950s, you'll see at the beginning of the 1950s, almost no one owned a television. By the end of the 1950s, almost everyone did. So I think along that road, we have lost sight of the importance of old-fashioned li liberties, of our responsibilities to other people, 
um, all of that sort of deal. Mm. I, you, you, it's funny that you mention that. I just, I'm literally just finishing reading this book. It's called uh, "This Is Not Propaganda." It's by Peter Pomerantsev, who uh, is Russian, but um, sort of came to the UK and and sort of lived ar- around Europe. And he, well, yeah, he basically goes through this this evolution of the of the science of of persuasion basically um and uh some of the, the the chapter i'm on at the minute he's talking to nigel oakes who was one of the founders of scl communications who were the parent company of cambridge analytica who i who i uh wrote about a lot in my first book and he uh he talks about this this place that we've arrived in where nothing is real and therefore you can convince anyone that anything is real <laughs> and it's it's it kind of feels like that's where we've got to with with governance um because and i don't know if 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 you would agree with this but to me it looks like every sing like there is no government anymore in my mind that the parliament and and the the cabinet and the government are just a pr firm essentially in my mind like they 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 don't seem to actually do anything substantially address any issues and and it's so frustrating to watch people get caught up in arguing about whatever the flavor of the day is when the institutions fundamentally don't work anymore. It doesn't feel real anymore. It does feel as if we're in some virtual parallel universe. To use a German word, the schmeck, the taste, the hmm. what's happened. A lot of people have this feeling that they're sort of almost watching themselves in some telly world. Some um, what was the uh, the film the uh, where they created that false universe? The Truman Show was it? The Truman Show that we're all living now in the a Truman Show of some sort, and this has been crafted for us individually by these PR people, by this giant psyop. I mean, when you think of it, if you watch TV now, it's just propaganda. Normal journalism seems to have ceased. I mean, okay, there may be a serious problem um, with COVID. It may have been exaggerated to a degree. In fact, I'm pretty sure it has been exaggerated to a degree. I don't think we can trust the numbers because an awful lot of people, not because of COVID, but with COVID or within 28 days of testing or 68 days of 60 days of testing, excuse me, in some cases, um, we can't really trust those statistics. We don't get honestly told about the reactions. Um, to the vaccines. If you go to AstraZeneca printout or Pfizer printout, you'll see the government's own data on reporting from the yellow card sites, um, which is quite spooky. I mean, you know, there's something like 1,500 people plus who've um, reportedly died um, along this path. And it is all very weird. Everything feels very weird. People are walking along on the pavement. They're driving along in their cars Some of them are pretending, perhaps most of them are pretending nothing is happening, but this ain't normal. This is really weird. I have never felt anything like this in my life. And what does disturb me is sort of military type um, psyops and the constant propaganda that is being projected, particularly out of television. And that must be having a terrible impact on people's psychology. I mean, I trained as an experimental psychologist and so I'm particularly aware of these issues. This is damaging people. If you're watching the TV every day, that toxic output is hurting you. It's probably going to make you 
have mental health issues. It might lead to depression. It might lead some people to commit suicide even, but it isn't normal. And what I don't get, here's a very interesting question. People in these big media organizations, they're not idiots. They know the impact of their output. So why is there this relentless negativity coming out of TV screens and other places? They know it's affecting people. So what are they trying to do? Are they trying to drive their policy, their vaccination policy? Or is it about something more than that? Is there some, you know, we hear a lot about the Great Reset. Um, is there something else going on, some political agenda that is being played out off the back of this? And you, you have other weird things. I mean, I noticed a couple of days ago, you probably did too, um, that the fact checkers were now trying to um, neutralize criticism of these exercises that they had just before the pandemic that seemed to magically predict everything that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And the fact checkers are saying, oh, well, you know, this isn't quite what it seems and blah, de, blah, de, blah, as if they were trying to get us to stop thinking about that. And it is very, very difficult now to know what is really going on. And you look um, at the politicians, and I have a very good friend of mine in Northern Ireland um, who was a, a politician of the centre, and he said he looks at Westminster now, and he just... He says, these, these people are a complete waste of space. He said, there's no leadership. The country's running rudderless. Um, there's no one really that stands out as telling people where we ought to be going. No vision. We have no vision of the future. We just live in the middle of this scary mess. And that is affecting a lot of people. And so I do say to people now, look, TV is essentially, particularly TV news is toxic. So switch it off maybe dip in occasionally just to monitor what the official line is. But, you know, get out into the real world. That's the world of grass and blue skies and birds singing and, you know, gardens and what have you. Um, do stuff that takes you out of this never-ending nightmare. Yeah, I couldn't – I really. It's, it's a difficult, like, line to walk sometimes where I both want to be because, like uh, – I consider myself to be a journalist. Some people might not, but that's that's what I, I believe I'm 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 trying to do at least anyway. I'm, I'm trying to seek truth, and what what happens is that it's some of the stuff is so relentless. Like at the minute in Northern Ireland, we're having a big discussion about about the vaccine passports, and on this note, I've asked I can't I've lost count of how many people to come on this show and defend or at least try and make the case for this for the vaccine passports. No one will do it. No one will even respond. Um, so if anyone is listening and, and wants to, to, you know, get me to see or speak to someone with a, a different view on this, I'm, I'm very happy to. But and what is going on with these vaccine passports, Josh? Yeah. So, and, the, and the story keeps changing. Yeah. You know, the narrative, as we call it, has changed. They weren't going to vaccinate kids initially. They weren't going to vaccinate pregnant women. Now they're trying to vaccinate both kids and pregnant women, even though there are, I think, obvious dangers when you have a, a medication that is as yet not signed off. And it would seem merely prudent not to vaccinate young, very young people and certainly pregnant women. And yet they're pushing it anyway. And the IFR of this, this disease isn't that serious. I mean, I often say to people, you know, where are the bodies? How many people do you know who've died of cancer? How many people do you know of died of heart disease, and most people know quite a few. Then you ask them, how many people do you know who've died of COVID? And the typical answer, there are exceptions, but the typical answer, and I have asked hundreds of people that question, is one. That is the typical answer. Mm. Um, so 
there is something very, very weird going on at the moment. Yeah. And meantime, they're trying to push it on us as if, you know, we should all just do as we're told. We should all be good little children. Well, no, in a democracy, we shouldn't all just do as we're told. What we should all do is question and see if the official line stands up to scrutiny. And there are many of us who think it, who think it doesn't stand up to scrutiny and have a lot of extra questions which just don't seem to get answered now. Meantime, however, you go onto the internet and there are a lot of lunatics as well. There are a lot of fundamentalists. There's a lot of really wacky, you know, the queen is a reptilian type conspiracy theories, <laughs> which are really being fueled in this climate of despair. But what we need are more people going down the middle path, but searching, asking questions, testing with doubt. The great thing about doubt, I say often that doubt is your friend because the truth withstands doubt. In fact, doubt is a great tool if you use it positively to get towards truth. You can't own the truth. Fundamentalists own the truth. Sensible people work towards truth. The truth's always in movement. I see it as a dynamic, but we can certainly be much better informed and have a much better idea of what's going on. What we mustn't do is pretend that nothing is going on. Something is going on. And if you haven't, you know, got all the red bells, uh, the red, the warning bells going off and the red lights flashing at the moment, well, there must be something wrong with you because this is the strangest thing I've ever lived through. And I've been in some very odd places. I've been to war. I've been in revolutions. I've seen a lot of weird stuff and I've never been through anything that feels like this. Yeah. And, and it's, so uh, what you've said there is, is so accurate. Um, the, what I, I've become like, almost despondent about over the past week or two is that the, so in, in Northern Ireland, as I mentioned, we're, we're, we're discussing this vaccine passport idea. And I say discussing it, I mean that 10 people from the executive are discussing it behind closed doors, not telling us what they discussed, not telling us why they're choosing to back this policy. Like, I have phoned all of the major parties, and none of them will give me any documentation, any reason, any statement, aside from saying this is what our minister said, that... that that backs up this hugely invasive policy. And I I, I, I watch these people, like the, the Alliance Party and the SDLP, who, who, would have, who were very anti-Brexit. And I talked to a couple of politicians on this show about, about the, the way that the Conservative government was handling the Brexit process, um, like the lack of transparency, the lack of um, impact assessments, all of these things. And I was the fool who believed that these people actually believed in those principles. Because as soon as it's the, on the other side, on an issue where they believe they're right, they have no interest in it. I have seen so many people being blocked on Twitter for asking questions about just politely. I, I, I've had the same thing happen to me. Like an Alliance counselor blocked me on Twitter because I said, hey, um, this is quite a big policy. Have you got any evidence that would, you know, suggest that this is going to work? Because as we've seen in, in Wales, in Scotland, in Austria, in, in loads of places, they introduced this policy and it doesn't do anything to reduce the COVID numbers whatsoever. There is no empirical evidence that shows me that this is what you're doing. So what is it all about then? I mean, I have it's, asked the question, are we at war? What is going on? Is there something else they're not telling us? Is there something happening? Um why have we not explored the origins even of COVID? I mean, it would, you know, there's different theories. It may have escaped from a lab. 
It could have been, I say could have been, I don't say it was, it could have been a deliberate act of sabotage by one government against another. Not necessarily, I mean, it gets very complicated because there's an American link, there's all sorts of stuff. <laughs> um, but it seems superficially, at least, that the, the Chinese do bear huge responsibility and they haven't been brought to book for it. And no one wants to really talk about that. And the journalists are not really exploring that for some reason, just as they're not exploring so many issues um, that relate to um, COVID and vaccination, not least vaccine injury. And you're talking to somebody, I unfortunately got a blood clot after having um, the AstraZeneca jab, and I had seven months of miserable ill health. I'm just, you know, beginning to improve a bit, not completely now. I still, you know, bear the scars from it. But why is the mainstream not considering this stuff? And meantime, we're meant, just, we're meant to just go about our daily business and pretend that nothing's going on and not look at, here is the key point. There was a very interesting article in The Economist. There has never been such a shift of power in Britain as there has been during the COVID crisis from the individual to central government. Mm -hmm. Central government has taken more and more power to the point that it has become, in some people's views, perhaps in mine, totalitarian. It's become, we're now living in an authoritarian state and people are not worrying about their historic liberties. We don't have a Bill of Rights um, to defend us, really. Well, we do have 1688 and all that, but that is a long time ago. Um, we don't really have anything that we can refer to and say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. We've got the law to a degree, but the law seems like everything else to have become politicized. And people are at sea. They don't have any philosophical, spiritual anchors anymore. They're just flotsam floating in this you know, the, the storm and the wind of COVID and all that goes with it. Um, it is a very unsatisfactory and unhappy situation. And you see that people are generally, they are not happy. They are miserable. And I, I do, again, I say to people, get out, try and focus on other stuff, switch the TV off, connect to other people as we're doing. Talk about it honestly. Don't hide from it. Don't hide from the bad stuff because that will lead to even worse stuff. Talk about it. Bring it out in the open. You know, what is this really all about? And what's happened to the Conservatives? Is this a Conservative government now? Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like a Conservative government. And who, who are the people in the background? To what extent do these foreign billionaires and big corporations and big banking really control our destiny? It would appear that they control it to a great extent now, particularly what I call big money seems to be the real government. And that democracy now seems to have been to be a sham. And because of that, people look to Westminster and the circus of Westminster and they've lost all respect for it because it's just a sort of, you know, telegenic show. And you've, you've got somebody like um, Boris, who's essentially little more than a mascot. He doesn't really, you know, he compares himself to Churchill, um, but he isn't really very Churchillian at all. But the opposition can't come up with anything better. In fact, if anything, they look worse. So, um, yeah, what uh, can I say? It, uh, it, we're on a podcast. What the fuck is happening? Yeah, don't worry about swearing. I do that too much. I, I, I had to decide early on that I was going to let... I got told by a radio show the other day, by the way, and this is interesting, that I wasn't allowed to mention the World Economic Forum. I won't say which radio show. Oh, goodness me. You see, this is the kind of... Sh this is the shit that pisses me off. It's like, okay, maybe there's like... there's the. 
I don't like have some concrete belief that there's some huge conspiracy pulling the strings, right? My belief is that a lot of the politicians are doing things because they believe they need to be, they need to protect people. I believe that a lot of them, especially the ones that are perhaps more elderly, um, perhaps overweight or in ill health, are scared for their own lives um, mm -hmm. and that they have drank the Kool-Aid as such as to how dangerous COVID is. And and that's why a lot of them sort of go along with it. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not people trying to influence agendas and, and people who are using this crisis, whether manufactured or not, to their own benefit. And to state that about any other crisis would normally just be, oh, well, obviously people are going to try and exploit it. But now if you say, hey, you know, I think people might be trying to exploit this this crisis to take away, I mean, I've watched social media companies become very, very pleased to take people offline that they don't, that, that maybe don't agree with their political agenda. I've witnessed um, uh, the police and, and the, the home office and the sort of security part of our government, like, lap up these extra powers that they've got with very little like sort of suggestion they're going to give it back and now they just stop there a minute because that's so important politicians particularly we're not necessarily talking backbenchers but the politicians that are in power and any of the big state agencies they of course all will lap up will love the idea of having more power so whilst they have the opportunity to seize it they will and I agree with you that it's not necessarily, we don't necessarily explain the present circumstance by conspiracy, although I do think there are some conspiracies um, going on in the background, but they've been going on for a long time. I mean, big big banks have effectively been conspiratorial. Um, look at the, the way the Bank of England operates and the other central banks operate, the way any big corporation operates. There's a, an element of conspiracy there, and we're pretty powerless as individuals against that. Think about phoning up any call centre and what a nightmare that is. You are nothing as an individual. And increasingly, you know, it might take you half an hour, 45 minutes to get through to whoever um, you want to get through to. And that's because those systems have been deliberately devised. So it's hard for you to get through to. They don't want to talk to you. They just want to direct debit and take your money. <laughs> now, these things can be misrepresented. And then, then you have the people online who will, you know, suggest that, um, the World Economic Forum are a, a fact, are a sort of branch of Satan Inc. Um, I know someone who actually used to work for the World Economic Forum in, in quite the senior capacity, and he basically <laughs> said that they were just, you know, they were just idiots. You know, they they were, they were just idiots who were, who were ambitious for themselves, but they weren't what's being presented by the conspiracy theorists online. It, I I do find it odd that. Um, Prince Charles and other members of the great and the good seem to be backing this this great reset. And because when you do look at the World Economic Forum and you look at the films that they've made, they do seem a bit weird. Mm. They seem to be promoting something that I call capital, which I now call capital collectivism. Mm. And that's a good. Term. I've asked people in the city of London, financial people, because I always, if you want to really find out what's going on, um, read the Financial Times and similar, and see what what the, the economic element is. And what I've been told by people who are, you know, not stupid, well, is basically people in big money are frightened that capitalism is failing. That is, that is their real fear, that capitalism seems to be failing, that the, the Joe public, the punters are losing faith in capitalism. 
So therefore, they have to rebrand capitalism and make it appear a bit more socialist. And I thought that's quite an interesting idea. It's not really becoming socialist. The people who've got these vast, you know, billion and trillion dollar fortunes now, they're going to still sit in on their islands and in their estates behind um, high walls and wires and blah, blah, blah. Um, but, but that's the real explanation, that there is a fear that capitalism is failing. Of course, communism failed. Mm. And I think um, capitalism probably is failing in a similar way. My own opinion is that both systems um, defined by Karl Marx are grossly materialistic. And there is not much space for the individual human spirit in either communism or capitalism. And I think for that reason, inevitably, whether or not, whether or not um, you believe in um, God or you're a, you know, an atheist, doesn't really matter, but there's not space for the human individual spirit. And because of that, those systems inevitably do collapse because essentially they're barren. Mm. So, I mean, you can you can give me your perspective actually on, on this take, but I don't believe that it is capitalism that is failing us. I believe it is the establishment class who have created this pseudo-oligarchical state where they just hoover up all of the growth from, from the entire economy and just take out all the gains for themselves. And, and this has been accelerating since, um, I mean, economist Mark E. Thomas, who I bring up frequently, um, who's, I think, brilliantly, uh, he's, yeah, people, if you want, go listen to my podcast with him. It, he, he basically points at the 1980s, where we went from this place where we had the golden age of capitalism from the post-war era up to about 1980, when, when Thatcher really started to sink her teeth in. Loads and, of money. Yeah, where we, we, but the growth that we had was across the entire economy. And we were, we were focused on, yes, capitalism and the individual, but we were also focused on using the power of the state to make people's lives better and more prosperous. And, and we managed to combine those two things. And for a pretty, yeah, for about 25 or 30 years, we had some pretty solid growth where uh, the gains were not exclusively going to the top 1%. Now that is exactly where all of the gains go. Like there's people who still haven't recovered financially since 2008. There's people whose, whose, whose real wages have not, in, in many cases they have dropped since then. I don't believe it's capitalism that's failing us. I think it's corruption and an absolute degradation of what like a f free capitalist system with a so with a with a robust welfare state, like the thing that was meant to define Britain um, post-war and the thing that sort of somewhat defined America in that golden age of capitalism has has not been there for 40 years. So I, I think you've, you, you've made some very good points that there are these people now who are taking more than their fair share and have, if you like, perverted capitalism or perhaps what capitalism should be in a, in a liberal democracy. Now, I can go back to Thatcher. I had an immediate feeling of unease. I mean, I'm old enough to remember Thatcher coming to power and I didn't like the feel of it. Although at the same time, you had the sell-off of all these um, national entities and big entities and ordinary people started to buy shares and they felt they were becoming enfranchised in that, you know, more universal capitalism, if you want to call it that. Um, so that was a change and that's gone now. And you have these people who are sitting apart from us, often abroad, on vast fortunes who seem to just want take, to take 
more and more and more. Mm -hmm. They want to take the widow's might. And if you have that situation and that continues, you're right, people will lose faith um, in that sort of capitalism anyway, but maybe we should call that corporatism. I don't know. It's, I mean, I, I think human societies will always revert to a sort of capitalism. I mean, communist societies did. You know, you can't suppress that sort of entrepreneurial instinct. You can't, you know, that, you'll never take that away from human beings. But something is going wrong. And you'd have thought these guys who are sitting on this vast wealth, you'd have thought that they might realize that what they're doing isn't in their own best interests. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's what we're seeing when they're saying they think that the, the public is losing faith in, like, capitalism. Maybe that's what they mean. Maybe they're finally seeing it. Yes, and may, I mean, and maybe that is what all this World Economic Forum stuff is all about. Because remember, the World Economic Forum is, is just a, basically a mouthpiece for extremely rich um, corporate and individual interests. So they, they're coming up with stuff to the, to the benefit of those people, not Joe Public, not Joe Public, who's um, the punter on the high street, who, who's going to the pound store. But we're talking people with vast wealth who seem to want even more wealth without seeing how potentially destructive that is if that process goes on forever. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you, you do make your your analysis of how capitalism of that sort is failing. Um, you know, it does ring a lot of bells with me. I think that's a, a very useful thing. Mm, because it's it's... It's frustrating to watch as well because, like, and and like my friend, my fr I was joking last night with Greg Foss about how my friends call me a communist, um, but like I believe in like the human entrepreneurial spirit. I believe in like the the ideas of freedom and being able to like start a business and come up with a great idea and go mm -hmm. for it. But like when you and I don't, I think that the people who are arguing for things like equality of outcome are just absolutely fucking insane like mm. but but they i don't know they they they're they're so critical of the system that we currently have they can't imagine that we could reform it to make it better and then you know I th they, they just want to tear I, it all down i think we all believe most of us anyway in the same sort of stuff we believe in justice we believe that old people shouldn't freeze to death in their homes we believe that you know people shouldn't um die because they can't afford treatment or a lot of basic stuff that there is tremendous you know consensus on mm -hmm. and i've never quite understood why we don't progress with that politically and more i mean religion's like, uh, a good uh, the, a good the one thing you. i would say sorry on that is that like the 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 people not might not have liked jeremy corbyn personally or the more extreme people in his party but I think that that 20, 2017 manifesto that got them one point from from um, from beating the conservatives was the was was the closest thing to that sort of you know we want to like encourage capitalism but like in use the power of the state to spend on infrastructure and like make the welfare state more robust and if you pitched like because they showed it in polls that that 2017 manifesto when it wasn't attached to the name jeremy corbyn or the labor party it was like polling 60 70 percent 80 percent on some issues people were in support of and for me it suggests that people aren't stupid they know intuitively what the country sort of vaguely needs and the things that would be good for it at least but the two-party system is destroying 
our ability to elect people that that will do things for us instead of just not being the other party. And this, I think the two part. Yeah. yeah, I think the two party system is immensely destructive. It creates conflict. I think what all of us think really is that people of ability should be elected um, as our representatives. Mm-hmm. And what we get now with the two party system is this ridiculous split. And essentially, you you vote for a delegate, a delegate rather than a representative. You have um, all this pressure on you through the media to um, you know vote for one side. Or the other. Generally, the Tories now because they've got more money, so they can, you know, pay for better PR in simple terms. Um, but people are really fed up with that. They don't like that sort of politics. A lot of people recognise that there's something fundamentally flawed um, by this red-blue theatre that we have now, and that it, it it's really it is old-fashioned in a way. It's not progressing the country. I I hate to use the word progressive because it it has carries so much baggage. But it isn't progressing the country, and it's it's led to an awful lot of despair um, and a, a, a conflict which is in many ways unnecessary. And of course, some people in their despair jump into fundamentalisms too. That, that you know that fundamentalisms become very attractive when you're in that state of total uncertainty, just looking for something to believe in. Mm. It also means you don't take responsibility for it yourself. Because the sort of future that I would envisage for us has us all as individuals having more responsibility, accepting that responsibility, and and not just being basically puddings that go and buy stuff, but who are actually actively involved in shaping the society that we live in. And, you know, having duties and responsibilities within that society, because people don't really want that now. They don't want to have duties and responsibilities. All they want to do is they, they want to... They want a bigger house. They want a new car. They want they want the holidays and the, the meals out and all of that. But they don't really want the tricky stuff. They don't want to go along to council meetings. They don't want to be part of that process of decision-making. They've actually accepted and want other people to do that for them because essentially these people are consuming children now. That's, that's what we've created, a society of consuming children that has been very deliberately manipulated. Because that old class system, the old hierarchies, the old authorities have broken down, those in power, and this is a deliberate philosophy, worked out that they could control people by their selfish desire. And that that is a very interesting deal. And of course, when you go out now, I mean, one of the things I've noticed, I don't know if you drive a lot, but I drive quite a lot. People behave crazily on the roads. People are very selfish now, very foolish now. That is another part of this weird world that we're living in. Um, something has gone wrong. Yeah, it's it's difficult to. Uh, yeah, the driving. I think I think what happened was everyone had a year off of driving, and now everyone's got yeah, really bad at it. it. Yeah. <laughs> but the the thing that I've been sort of moving towards. Um, I so, mean, j- just before you go from that, I've had yeah. really crazy stuff. I've had two incidents in the not so distant past where people have just driven straight at me. Um, when I've been in a stationary car, for example, and I've had to honk my horn or in one case, you know, put my hand out the window and do a stop sign, or they would have just driven straight into me as if, almost as if I wasn't there in the car, almost as if they weren't seeing me. All they were seeing was they're in their own little universe, their own selfish bubble. Mm. And I think that describes a lot of behavior at the moment. People are 
perhaps they're, they, they, it's their sort of the little space they defend or whatever it is, but they're in these selfish bubbles. Generally speaking, that's a very unhealthy place to be because you're not really relating to other people. You're not relating to your society. Um, it's uh, something you do for comfort or to uh, defend whatever, I don't know. Um, but it is very un, it's very odd and it is a very big and noticeable change, particularly in the, in the last um, year. It's something is very odd is going on in people's heads. Mm. I mean, I, I, there's a there's a theory I spoke to um, uh, Dr. Randy Thornhill from the University of New Mexico, but I, I, I want to come back to that. But I think what you're saying is probably based out of um, not interacting with people. Like the 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 lockdowns and the social isolation, uh, social isolation, regardless of what you think about it, definitely had some sort of psychological effect on people. But the 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 point that I was I was going to make there there a minute ago was, I've been moving towards this idea. Now I spoke to Tom Brake from Unlock Democracy um, earlier this year, and we spoke about this idea of having having a written constitution or some sort of constitutional convention or something like that in the UK. And the the idea has kind of been like gestating in my mind for a little bit. And the more I think about it, the more I think that 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 we need some sort of some sort of yeah, I, I don't want to call it a constitutional convention because I don't necessarily think we need a specifically written constitution, although maybe that would be the result of it. I think we need, like, I keep calling it the big review of Britain, where we go in and we go, okay, look, here's the stuff that's working. Here's the stuff that's, like, done us proud over the last 30 or 40 years. Here are the rights that we believe people have. Here are the powers mm-hmm. that government should have. Here's, like, the, maybe we get rid of the House of Lords. Maybe we implement proportional representation. Maybe we stop MPs having second jobs. Um, and uh, and uh, But I think more and more and more that the solution to a lot of our problems is to get citizens' assemblies of people and get them to sit down, have have like ideas presented to them, and and just talk through and vote on on ways that we could strengthen our democracy and enshrine rights and freedoms that 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 will and have proven to be absolutely fundamental to progress and prosperity as a, as a species. Uh, like, do you, do you think that that's an unrealistic thing that we? I think it's a beautiful idea. I, I think we've got to look back at the past. You look at Magna Carta, you look at 1688 and all of that stuff. All a long time ago, you look at the US Constitution. And of course, elements of the US Constitution came from our Bill of Rights. For example, the right to keep and bear arms is actually part of 1688 and all that. Although in, in, in Britain, it was or in England, it was something that was limited to Protestants, by the way, in, in 1688. It was a way of defending the realm against these naughty Catholics who were thought to be scheming. But the Americans took that and put it in their constitution, which is a fascinating um, byway. Um, do I think it's possible? Yeah, not only do I think it's possible, I think it's something we've got to do. Do we want a written constitution? There are disadvantages to a written constitution. I mean, the US example um, proves that, but I think there are also advantages to it. And I think the idea, you know, we, we were saying there are a lot of things that we all believe in. Essentially, we believe in justice. We, you know, we believe that old people shouldn't starve or freeze to death. We believe that people shouldn't die because they they can't afford 
treatment. Perhaps we believe that we shouldn't be taxed to death as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because taxation now is another very interesting issue. I mean, the average person now is probably paying over 60% in taxation when you add it all up, you know, direct and indirect taxation. And a lot of that money is wasted. A lot of that money is taken up in the processes and the collection processes themselves. But worse, a lot of the money is put into bureaucracies, which are dysfunctional and actually make our lives worse. So there's a lot of stuff there to talk about. And yes, I think we do need a new constitution. And I think there would be, if anyone would present that as a vision to the public, as a political vision, I think that, that that's got legs. Um, and I think giving people more power, giving people their power back, but with that power comes responsibility. If you do have things like citizens' assemblies, people have got to go to them. They've got to make the effort to vote. Um, you know, maybe they can do it online. I don't know. Um, but there's certainly new models which we should be considering now. Proportional representation you know, people will tell you that as soon as you have proportional representation, government becomes moribund. Well, maybe, but you also get a much better and fairer representation of opinion, and you don't get this terrible polarity, which is tearing us apart. And meantime, of course, the elephant in the living room is that a liberal democracy is developing into some sort of new totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is scary as hell. I mean, I, again, am old enough to remember a different sort of freedom. Things used to be, when I was young, things were much freer than they are now. Much, much freer. Mm. Our liberty is being taken away from us, and we accept it. We accept it every time we phone a call centre and you can't get through. We accept it every time some official body tells you you've got to do this or you've got to do that, um, or you have to pay for this or pay for that. There's so much intrusion in our lives now. The boundaries are not clear. I mean, in, in America, traditionally, um, America always liked to think it's free. But in fact, in practice, and I've lived in the States, it's not as, as free a country as the Americans like to believe. There's a, there was a great tyranny of public opinion. Now there's an awful lot of actual legislative tyranny mm. and the tyranny of laws, which have gr- grown too all-encompassing. You know, I mean, if you actually look at how many new laws hit the statute books every year, it, it's getting, life is getting too complicated as well. This is another aspect. You're trying to, whoever is in power is trying to cover everything legalistically. And nobody, none of the people on the ground, none of the the small agents of big power have any discretion anymore. Everything is done according to some sort of tick box routine. And the effect of that on us as individuals is that our lives are becoming much, much more constrained, that we waste infinite portions of our lives um, dealing with both corporate and governmental bureaucracies. It doesn't feel anything like freedom at all, really, anymore. Mm. And if that process continues, I think people will go mad. I think it's as simple as that. If we're not going mad at the moment, Mm. we definitely will go mad in large numbers in the future. And then who knows, you know, what will happen? Um, So, yeah, we, we do need to consider a constitution. We do need to consider proportional representation. We do need to consider government giving back some of the power they have taken and handing it back to us. So these are all vitally important issues. Mm. And I agree with so much of what you said there. I do want to do want to say that, like, I'm not one of these 
free marketeers, oh, we should just let corporations pollute and do whatever they want. Like there are places, there's time for robust regulation. And in many of the industries where we need it, there isn't any, which is like the most irritating part is like some of parts of our lives are incredibly micromanaged. And some of them are just like left to to sort of yeah do do as they please and the it's it really really confuses me as to the yeah what's going on but I mean I I just um, in terms of what you said about freedom uh, it reminded me of this wonderful Thomas Jefferson quote who whose statue actually got taken down yesterday um, somewhere in America <laughs> yeah I mean I, I was laughing because there was a a, a picture <laughs> doing the rounds about. Uh, it was like do- people like a headline being like Donald Trump is being hyperbolic. They will never remove statues of Jefferson and Washington. And then like 18 months later, here we are. But anyway, um, the quote is, which I love, it says, um, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right. It is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. And to me, that basically means if the government gets too tyrannical, it is our job as the people to say no. And you know, that- people in the states are much more alert to that idea than we are. The idea that if government does become tyrannical, you should say no, enough, boys, stop doing it. We're taking our power back. People in England, by contrast, probably people in Germany too, people in Scandinavia, just tend to do as they're told. The French are a bit more bolshy. Um, you know, they have manifestations. They go on the street in large number. Although having said that, France looks like a pretty scary place at the moment. You know, the um, Mr. Macron seems, if Boris has a Churchillian complex, Mr. Macron seems to have a Napoleon complex. <laughs> uh, the One of the things actually that Peter Pomeran said was talking about in this book was... Um, the difference so when he met he went to a, an international school at one point and he met some french people and he learned about napoleon and their view of napoleon is as like a an absolute like proof of meritocracy and and um like a, a general who who rose through the ranks to become a, a hero and a conqueror for france and like their version of what napoleon is compared to what we think is so different it's hilarious yeah it's true no it is it's true and of course i mean the french really think that the um that napoleon won essentially i mean they've completely rewritten history in their own favor i mean that's france they have some great characteristics of france as well but you know, a, a realistic view of Napoleon isn't one of them. Um, where are we going, though? I mean, it's an interesting point about Napoleonism, auto, the autocrat. We see autocrats all over the world now coming to power and directly challenging the idea even now of liberal democracy. They, they're actually, they've got the arrogance now to start saying, oh, actually, you know, or, you know my autocracy with me as the great leader is better than anything that liberal democracy um, can come up with. And my answer to to them, and I think yours would be the same, is hold on, guys, no. Because what we have now at the moment in the West probably isn't really democracy at all. It is democracy which has been perverted, perverted, excuse me, by all sorts of interests and power groups. And the essential feature of a liberal democracy is that the people have power. And that power of the individual um, has been taken away from us more and more and more. And partly, and this is the big deal, we've let it happen and we've been complicit with that. So we bear some of the responsibility 
ourselves. It's all very well to look at Westminster and say they're all shysters, they're all corrupt. Um, and there is, you know, obviously there's a staggering amount of corruption now amongst politicians. But we have played our part. We bear some responsibility and we just don't really want to take, you know, we don't want to do anything about that. We just want to say how awful these people are without seeing that they are in some ways, they are in some ways a reflection of ourselves. Mm. So that, that is an, an interesting area. And yeah. meantime, of course, you'll get people coming up on the fringes of politics, on the extremes of politics and offering themselves up as saviors. And for those people who don't really want to take responsibility themselves, those saviors, those potential autocrats, will be, you know, they'll be attracted, unfortunately. And you can see it. You can see people coming up on the margins. I won't mention specifics, but on both sides of the political spectrum. Mm. That's, that, that, that is what happens under the sort of circumstances we're living through, which are a bit scary. Yeah. So and for the people watching this, you know, are you worried about what's happening? Are you a bit scared? Well, that's a normal reaction. This is a very, very weird time in history we're living through. And to go back to what I said earlier, I have never known anything like it in my 60 plus years of life. And I've been through a lot of situations, war and peace and revolution, you name it, not to mention four kids um, and all the stuff that goes with it. Twelve books, two million words of journalism. I've been through quite a lot in my life. And this isn't normal. It is very weird. And we shouldn't pretend nothing's happening. Mm, I mean, that is reassuring to hear from someone who's who's lived through it, because, I mean, my, my, my question quite often to people who of, of generations before me is like, is this was this always this mad? Like, because, because Al Murray has this bit, you know, the, the pub landlord, the comedian who I absolutely love. Um, he he has this bit was like, well, it's it was from like 2013 or something. It's like, well, this coalition government, well, it's just the worst government ever. Except, you know, well, think of Gordon Brown, you know, he was just, well, that was the worst government ever. But then, you know, think back, Tony Blair and Iraq and, you know, PFI contracts and everything. That was really the worst government ever. And he goes back through like the whole way back to like 1900. Um, saying that we've always said it was the worst government ever, obviously with the exception in his case of Churchill in the war. Um, but the but even when you that's an interesting point, isn't it? And even when you explore the real history of Churchill, Churchill was no saint. We've no. deified we've deified Churchill, as we tend to deify, you know, other other people. I mean, Churchill was very brave guy, very ambitious. Um, wonderful command of the English language, but not without, you know, serious flaws to his character, some of which had been covered up. And, you know, we, I'm not going to go into them now, but I mean, I've read quite a lot of Chichilian history and there's some very interesting stuff that went in the background, particularly when Churchill was young. Um, so we're always looking for saviours. We're never looking to ourselves. Now, is this government the worst in history? Well, no. Evidently, it's not the worst in history, but it's pretty useless. It seems it seems pretty rudderless. Um, it it doesn't seem to have much vision. I mean, what is Boris? He seems to be some sort of mascot. He's not much of a leader. I mean, his he I think his speeches are muddled. Um, people liked him. They let him get away with stuff because um, I can remember when I was a, you know I was in the army. I was an army officer. I wasn't much of an army officer. I left the army to become a reporter. But I can remember um, one of my color sergeants saying to me that, you know, some with some officers, the men, the men follow them, sir, just because they're curious to see what's going to happen next. And I think <laughs> so a bit like that. People, 
people follow him out of a sense of curiosity that he's quite entertaining because he's not just another bloke in a gray suit. You know, I mean, he goes off and he has his relationships and he does the stuff that he does. He's not quite the conventional ticket. And they actually quite like that. They like that lack of conventionality. He's not, he is a member of the establishment and his family are all establishment, but he, he appears to be a bit of a character. And they like the fact that he's a bit of a character. One of the things that's happening now is it's almost as if they're trying to suck all the character and individuality out of us. And I think instinctively, people don't like that. I noticed when I, I, I come to Northern Ireland, or did come to Northern Ireland a lot, people in Ireland, both sides of the border, they're still characters in Ireland. People still communicate in a much more human level, at a much more human level than we do in modern England. We're more distant, reserved. I mean, we always have been historically, but that, that, that's got even worse. And I notice the difference when I come, um, come to Northern Ireland or, or, or go across the border. Um, people are more human. And I want to live personally. I want to live in a more human society where I can talk to people, where I respect their individuality, where I, you know, where I can enjoy their differences. I can enjoy the fact they're not like me, you know, but they've got stories to tell. Um, all of that's going. We're all meant to follow someone's corporate line now. And, it, and it's creating a dystopian nightmare. And it's not even very efficient. If it was efficient and it led to a better world, you might say, OK, I'll have some of that. But it doesn't. It's deeply inefficient and seems to be leading to a very, very unhappy world. So it, here it is. It's up to us. We've got it. Well, here's a conversation we're having now. Let's hope there are thousands more conversations like this. We've got to change it. We've got to get it back. And the, the solution isn't any in any form of autocracy or totalitarianism. It's an improved democracy where more people, you know, do have do take a part in it and take a real interest in it. Mm. The the thing you mentioned there actually about about sucking the individual individuality out of people and the character really speaks to me in a way, just because it, like I don't feel like that's personally happening to me. But the the thing that I, I just I always think about, and it might just be like a, a little silly like anecdotal thing, but rock stars used to be rebels, you know, like musicians and like artists, and we used to have like a, a whole respected class of people who who were contrarians and um, you know, alternative thinkers and people who challenged the status quo in a way. And now everyone who appears on mainstream anything is the most milk toast, center of the road, non-offensive person that you can possibly find. Like, I mean, it's true. M music always used to be, you know, having a go at the establishment, didn't it? You know, from the Sex Pistols downwards. I mean, it was having a go at whatever the establishment's conventional wisdom was. Now, you know, celebs, pop stars, and music's pretty anodyne now. I mean, I think there's something's happened to the creative process in all this as well. You don't see much interesting. You don't see much great art at the moment. Mm -hmm. But people just come, you know, whoever the celeb is, they'll just support whatever the prevailing PC line is. Mm -hmm. And there isn't, they, there's no encouragement of that question of um, questioning, of skepticism, of testing the official line and seeing if it actually does hold water. No, they're just supporting it. And of course, in doing that, they maintain their own position and their own power and they get talk, they get asked back onto the couch in the morning. 
I mean, I used to do a lot of morning TV. I don't do any of it anymore. I used to be, I was the first security correspondent on British TV um, for morning wow. TV a long time ago. <laughs> and, I, and I've done hundreds, if not more, a lot of broadcasting on terrorism. I made a history of terrorism for the uh, BBC Omnibus. I made a, the media and the monarchy for BBC Omnibus. This is on the World Service um, and um, other programmes for, for network TV uh, as well. Um, I just don't get asked to broadcast anymore because my views are not the establishment's views. And of course, remember, this is a new establishment now. It's not just the old establishment. It's not just the old sort of slightly weird Oxbridge Church of England um, establishment with people singing in strange voices. It is the establishment of the politically correct, of the people that say the right things, that, you know, repeat the mantra. And if you repeat the mantra, you get on, you get asked on to, you know, the, the, the morning couch or whatever it is, or um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, etc. cetera. Um, because you've repeated the mantra, you don't get to those places by questioning the system, even, no. even if you're a pop star. No. So that means it's a very different sort of, you know, very different sort of deal now than a generation ago. Very, very different, even 25 years ago, even 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I... I... I don't know what's caused that because like maybe it's just that all the characters are no longer interested in the mainstream because and I, 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 I love the clip of uh, from CNN of Brian Stelter, who's one of their hosts, like just be he was doing a he was pontificating on the problem with YouTube and he was like, you know, can you believe it? These people get more views than CNN. And it's like, yeah. Yeah, because I can believe better. it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I used to do a lot of work for CNN. I used to comment on terrorism for CNN, and um, in particular, <laughs> the, phone, the phone doesn't ring anymore. Um, <laughs> ditto, ditto with the BBC. Um, so you're um, not the first person I've heard. Ha that having from. said that, I did do something um, for a, one of the major BBC shows the other day, but it's very rare now. Mm. Um, and I, I, I feel now that you have got to be absolutely constrained in what you say you cannot say what you think that is a very dangerous thing if you say what you think if you talk about the sort of stuff we're discussing you know that's it you will not be asked back ever you, you know it's the same on twitter i mean i'm careful what i put up on twitter i understand the boundaries of that system and um what i could you know i i, I push it and it's quite interesting have you noticed it's changed there were, you still can't on Facebook. I don't think you can say, you know, you can say the v, the v word vaccination. If you say that, you're almost certain to get your account taken down. I've had my account taken down a couple of times. Um, Twitter, I've noticed, has become a little bit more. It's not free, but you can say a little bit more than you were able to say, say, 12 months ago. Mm. It's quite interesting. I'd love to know who sets that, you know, who sets those boundaries. Yeah. And then yeah. and you notice, I mean, I. I'm careful I use um, wording that I don't think the bots will pick up and stuff like that. And that seems touch wood. That seems to have worked. And I'm still there and I've got 60,000 followers on Twitter. That may not last forever. But for the moment, I have that platform and I'd like to develop others. But I also want to see loads of us connecting like this, creating you know, a groundswell, creating a critical mass for change. Because I think that's coming. I don't think people will accept. I mean, we've got two futures, haven't we? One's a sort of fascist dystopia 
that I don't think anybody wants to live in or a communist dystopia that nobody wants to live in. But I think it's more likely that it would go, there might be elements of socialism to it as there were with the Nazis, but I think it's more likely to go towards a sort of fascist corporate dystopia. Mm. Or we create something else, something better, something more humane and something which will give us a better and freer life and also address all the colossal problems that face us, you know, collectively as a species. Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah. And it's critical, I think, in this case to to have people like yourself making the case for positive change and and a, a better vision of the future because when everything sort of comes crumbling down and when things when you know when when the revolution comes or when the the next crisis hits us the the problem with like revolutions and tearing the system down is that quite often the worst possible people end up in charge is like like uh, people can romanticize if they like about the 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 1917 um, revolution in russia and they can think you know the bolsheviks they had the best interests of the people at heart and it's like maybe they did look what happened inside 10 years you had stalin m- like purging millions of people from 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 the earth to just killing them and then on top of that they started killing all the farmers and then like half of ukraine starved to death like that's what happens when when but it is amazing chaos. i mean people when they you know they talk about communism or marxism today they, they forget about the concrete rooms in stalinist russia you know people walking in them and getting shot in the side of the head in their hundreds of thousands and you know the the casualties to communism seem to be conveniently forgotten. I always find it interesting that the media tells us a lot about the Nazis, but they tell us far less about the, the casualties of communism. But, but it's all the same deal. It's all the, the, the same stuff. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end on this thought, Josh, if I may. Yes, of course. Years ago, I wrote a book about Lawrence of Arabia. I was the assistant, assistant adjutant at Bovington Camp where T.E. Lawrence died. Um, on his motorcycle. And that's an interesting story. There are many um, interesting aspects to that story. But I got in touch with Terry Waite. And this was before Terry Waite got kidnapped. And um, funnily enough, later he got kidnapped in um, Beirut and I got kidnapped in Beirut. The difference was they only kept me for a day. My captors quite liked me. I had an interesting philosophical conversation with them and they let me go. But the last thing that Terry Waite said to me when he invited, I went to see him at Lambeth, he invited me to tea. And these words have always stuck in my mind. He said, Michael, the great lie is the individual can't change things for the better. And that has always stuck with me. We can, as individuals, we can. If we take on that responsibility, we can change things for the better. And we must change things for the better because they ain't so good at the moment. Mm, that That's definitely an absolutely beautiful note on which to end things. The last point I do want to make very, very briefly is that Wikipedia are considering deleting the page of mass killings under communist regimes. I didn't believe it was true wow. until I went to look at it, but they are disputing the accuracy, neutrality, and verif- um, verifi- verifiability, verifiability? Sorry, yeah, verifiability of the claims. So, you know... Wow. Go save that page before, you know, it gets deleted, people. Well, as I'm as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at the table embroidered by my grandfather, the tabletop, whilst he was in Gestapo captivity. And the Gestapo's claw, he was in captivity for a year and liberated by the Allies. 
And I always look at that and I think about his courage. And I was in Afghanistan when the Russians were there. Um, and I saw what they did there. And I'm, and, you know, I'm not saying we didn't do bad stuff there because we did. I think it, it really concerns me when we see all these terrible things that have happened in the past. And if anyone tries to deny them, whether it's Holocaust denial or denial of the crimes of Stalin, that is just terrible. Because what you're doing is making that sort of thing more likely again. And those evils of these autocratic, fundamentalistic regimes, you know, bad, bad news. Human beings working together for a better future, thinking, who are capable of doubting stuff, disagreeing kindly with each other and moving forward. That is our future. Not in anyone's one great big idea. Those one great big ideas lead to millions of people dead. Cheers, Rush. Yeah, that's that's perfect. What what a way to end things. I will clip that point for Twitter. So yeah, Mike, um, thank you so much. Uh, you can find him at Yardly Shooting on Twitter. Uh, the link is in the description below for anyone curious, as is uh, your website and everything. So um, yeah, man, thanks thanks very much. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Josh. Let's do it again sometime. Bye bye. Definitely. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the video. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and leave a comment for us in the comments below. Let me know what you thought and if you'd like to see more of this from the show. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time.